When I was a little girl, growing up at First Baptist Church of Marion, one of the highlights of the Christmas season at church was the annual Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. It was a collection for global missions. Many of you, too, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, probably had a similar offering collected. And maybe you, too, helped to fill up these plastic rice bowl banks. Do you remember these? It was a simple brown bowl on the bottom with little feet so it would stand still on a table or a dresser. And then the white top, which pulled off, had a rice-stamped hard outer shell with a little slit in the top for you to put your coins in. This was a staple of my childhood. Filling up this bank was a way that I, in my young years, could contribute to the cause of sharing the good news with people all over the world. I remember the joy of taking my rice bowl in my hands that I had filled up all by myself. No help. I mean, I dig, dig through couch cushions to help, but no, like, (laughs) gift, essentially, like, please fill this up for me. I did it myself. And I marched it down the aisle to put it on the altar with all the others. This Christmas ritual made a deep, impression upon me. Now I'm fairly certain that you have heard some unique Halloween costumes in your days, but I bet I can top them. In the third grade, I wanted to be Lottie Moon for Halloween. And my mother had to get really creative with how to make her child look like a missionary to China from the 1870s from the McCall's dress patterns that we found at Foam and Fabrics. And any house that I went to probably regretted they asked me who I was because I was ready to tell them. I was undeterred by these wide-eyed looks at me of adults and there's goodness at my parents and they just smiled and shook their heads. This is what she wanted to be. We tried. No princesses or superheroes for me. Missionaries. And then years later, during my first year in seminary, I wrote a final term paper on the legacies of the women's missionary movements in the Southern and American Baptist traditions and what they can teach us Christians in the modern day about practicing stewardship with our whole selves, aligning our identity and purpose in the world with the identity and purpose of Christ. I guess I am still undeterred and have my spiel ready to go, though I hope I can read my audience better now. We are moving to the end of our series examining the practices of a congregation rooted in the Holy Spirit that make us come alive in that spirit. These four Sundays plus the next one for the season of Pentecost will set the tone for these next few months until the last Sunday in November as we explore what it might mean to take seriously, radically, intentionally the call of God upon us to be a community of faith that is restless, growing, creating, mirroring the loving, boundary-breaking, relationship-seeking heart of the divine. 
vulnerable hospitality, passionate worship, and intentional faith development are the foundation stones that provide us a safe and stable place to stand. And consider for today how we already are a congregation that practices generosity and how we might make it extravagant in new ways. What makes generosity extravagant, I think, is that it goes above and beyond what is rationally expected and hoped for. Something that's extravagant almost kind of borders on the irrational. It's not a quid pro quo. It's delightful abundance. Its unexpected nature disarms and lifts the burdens and worries that there will not be enough. Extravagant generosity is about abundance, about joy, about an attitude of stewardship that is our whole selves. Now, from being your pastor these last ten and a half months, I've witnessed countless acts of extravagant generosity and stewardship of your whole selves taking place among you. But going back ten and a half months would take a while for me to try and tell you all the things, so I'll just lift up a few things from the past week that I want you to know about from where I see things. Since Jason and I were in Dallas, Texas all last week, we couldn't be here when a health scare and an unexpected trip to the hospital happened for one of our families. I was told about it along with the assurance that meals were being coordinated and visits were being planned. And the same message. And then when a beloved family member of one of our other beloveds in the church passed away this week, the same sequence of events happened. Love and care and compassion came pouring out. Extravagant generosity wrapped its arms of grace around those doing their grief work. That's just what makes providence providence. When we celebrated a meet and greet with our candidate for music director, I wanted so badly to be here. But I trusted that that same spirit of extravagant generosity would be abundantly present without me to welcome, to nourish, and to bless that evening together, as well as all the possibilities that await us. And on Friday, when Jason was endorsed as chaplain, extravagant generosity came in text messages and emails saying, we're cheering for you, we're thankful for you, we're so proud of you and Jason and your family. Extravagant generosity is just what makes providence, providence. This practice shows that you listen deeply to the needs of those around you. And then that you do more than listen. You act. You go above and beyond and so demonstrate that the relationships nurtured here don't lie dormant until you return on Sunday. But they grow sometimes even more so during the week than they do on Sunday. With all of the ways 
you lift one another up. This is what it means to be with God and with one another. Compassionate companionship, no matter what, in joy and in sorrow. But there's also a puzzle that has come to light for me in the last ten and a half months. And as I've pondered how to put it into words, because I can't quite get my hands around it, the scripture read from John's gospel is the one that came to mind. Jesus is the all-knowing being in this gospel, and he understands that something is happening when he gathers with those disciples and then more and more people keep coming to join him on this deserted hillside. Something is drawing all of these people to him. They're seeking to learn from Jesus and experience something different, something more from life. So Jesus asks Philip, the disciple, maybe who happened to be closest, I don't know, this question, where are we going to buy enough bread for these people to eat? Then John tells us that Jesus said this to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. But Philip didn't pass this test. He didn't even hear Jesus' question correctly. Philip answers, six months' wages would not be enough to buy bread for them to have even a little bit. Do you hear the despair, the scarcity in his answer? Six months wages isn't even enough for a little. So why bother, Jesus? Why would you even ask the question? It's just not possible to buy bread enough for these people to eat. Philip's answer had to do with the mechanics. Maybe he was an engineer or a carpenter. He had to do with the dollars. What are the physical resources that we have on hand? The how of the situation. But Jesus wasn't asking, how are we going to buy bread for these people? He asked, where? Where do we find what we need? Where is our mind, our heart, when faced with a need greater than our own individual abilities to respond? When we are in company with others, seeking to be faithful to the call and the journey of Jesus, there is room for the Spirit's creative spark to initiate a partnership between unlikely people like the partnership between Andrew, the other named disciple, and a little boy who had been sent out into the day, maybe on his own adventure, and was curious about what's happening with this crowd, who had five loaves of bread and two fish. Andrew and this kid got together, and Andrew presented this little boy's lunch offering to Jesus. But still thinking this would scarcely be enough for everyone. Yet Jesus 
And children, I think, know differently. The miracle happened when one person began to share what they had. All Jesus did was pray a blessing over it. He didn't work magic, whisper some undecipherable words under his breath and wiggle his fingers, and suddenly abundance happened. He just blessed it. He blessed what one person gave. And then in the blessing, he commissioned others to follow the example of the little child who led the grown-ups into extravagant generosity. And this makes me wonder, who were the adults in that little one's life that taught him how to share? How to see the world like Jesus and counter the ideas of scarcity with the abundance of extravagant generosity? So this is where the puzzle comes in for me. Maybe you can help me to understand it or how we can come to a new understanding altogether. What lessons do we teach our children here in Providence in our worship about generosity and giving? Our fantastic Sunday school teachers and children's time preachers teach them and us lessons about sharing with others who don't have enough of what they need. Be that friends or school supplies or hugs, kind words, food. Time and effort and energy is put into lessons about being generous in word and deed and action and how they as children can support their church and share God's love wherever they go. And that is a beautiful thing. But what about money? I said it, the M word. How are we teaching our children about money in worship? What are our actions demonstrating to them when we talk about being rooted in the imagination of the Holy Spirit, expressing a faith and trust in God to guide us and provide for our physical needs, but exhibit a level of stress and anxiety that seem a little inconsistent when it comes to discussing our financial future. So help me understand, where in our worship service do we actively teach and model to our children how to understand money as a gift and how to use it in ways that further God's purposes and priorities that we find in Scripture and in our community? Where will our children learn to give thanks for the resources, the time, the talent, and the treasure, and then give them all back to God in a joyful letting go and trusting that the earth is full of God's glory? We sang that a lot. I hope it sunk in. And that God is the bounteous giver and sustainer of all life. Where will they learn what it looks like to give cheerfully, joyfully, freely, not reluctantly or under compulsion, as Paul writes? Where else will they learn what it looks like to trust one another 
and to value each person for who they are, no matter the size of their bank account or the number of coins in their pocket. What might it mean to grant the opportunity in worship for money to be put in its rightful place? In a weekly giving, receiving, and blessing of our treasure and service to God that builds us up, equips us for life and for ministry, and fosters worldviews that are sustaining, enriching, and meaningful. All the people needed was a way to bless what they had already brought with them in order for a miracle to happen, for all to be fed. Extravagant generosity and abundance came from questions and analysis that opened up the door to a new way of sharing and believing what the prophet Malachi spoke and that Jesus embodied on that hillside. The call of God to bring into the, the storehouse the full tithe so that there may be food in my house. And thus put me to the test, says the Lord. See if I will not open up the windows of heaven upon you and pour down a blessing that overflows. Put me to the test, God actually says. See if I won't show up for you. The practice of extravagant generosity takes many forms. It is the stewardship of our whole selves. And the part of ourselves is understanding our money. And we do this stewardship so well in so many areas here at Providence. We support through missions giving, through one-time gifts, occasional gifts, monthly bank drafts, whenever we can, gifts. And every one of those gifts and givers is precious and valued. Yet I think the missing piece of this puzzle is a collective and conscientious response to the abundantly extravagant generosity of God, as well as all those who made it possible for us to be here where we are. For we are the beneficiaries of those who came before us, those who were touched by the generosity of Christ enough to give graciously so that we could experience the truth of Christ Jesus for ourselves. To paraphrase Deuteronomy, we worship in a sanctuary that we did not build. We drink from wells that we did not dig. And so to us falls this privilege of creating sacred spaces for others to come and worship God for generations to come. If a little girl could be so inspired through an offering to determine her Halloween costume based on that offering's namesake, what else might we inspire in our young people to do with their passions and questions and understandings of faith? Dream with me, church. 
Try new ideas with me. And let's let the abundance of God's extravagant generosity transform and free us to love and give as we have been loved and have received. Amen.